Hello, everyone. Welcome to the How We Work podcast. We have a super special guest today. His name is Paolo Savaget. He is an associate professor at Oxford University's Engineering Sciences Department and the Science Business School. He is also the author of the book, The Four Workarounds. Help me welcome, I expect a round of applause, everyone, even though he can't hear you. <laughs> Please welcome Paolo Savaget. Misha, thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here with you. And I look forward to hearing your questions and your comments as well about the book. Awesome. Okay, let's jump right in. As you know, we're work human. So we like to start by asking about the human. So tell us a little bit about Paolo the human and your background. How does your background and upbringing make you you and influence who you are and where you are today? Mishan, this is such a difficult question. I feel like I should connect you with my shrink. <laughs> <laughs> I have one too. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I'll try to answer, even though it's a very existential <laughs> question. Well, I'm an academic now, but I've worked for many years in different capacities. I worked as a consultant, as an entrepreneur. I would say that because of the way that I was brought up, I'm from Brazil, a place that is so unequal that has lots of systemic issues ranging from violations of the rights of indigenous populations, racism, gender inequalities, right? And one of the highest inequality rates in the world as well. I grew up in a way that these issues were very vivid and they motivate me in my work and my studies. So I, I'm motivated by sustainability, broadly framed, could be any social issue or environmental issue as well. But I'm also very interested in very new approaches. I'm, I'm interested in things that different ways of looking at problems or different technologies, innovations, ways of addressing this pressing sustainability problem. So that's how I would see myself. I have a very interdisciplinary background. My PhD is in engineering. My first degree is in economics. I studied anthropology, sociology. I have a very, I would say, a bit of a disregard to disciplinary boundaries because I enjoy not only the different ways of looking at problems, but also the different ways of seeing them that these disciplines provide. So I cross disciplines in these studies and I am very interested in exploring new phenomena things that I cannot really understand and why. And, and, and then I, I'm motivated by these questions. I'm equipped with a background studying and working in entrepreneurship and innovation and sustainability, but I normally use a systems lens. I'm fascinated by systems thinking and different ways of understanding complexity and acting in complexity. I know that was a very long answer, but I, <laughs> I think this is such a difficult question to, to talk about. <laughs> No, I love that. It sounds like you have a complex and multi-layered background and it influences the way you look at the world. So thank you for breaking that down for us. So now I want to get into your professional background because you hinted at this when you talked about being multidisciplinary, but you have had experience in nonprofits, intergovernmental organizations. 
remote groups in the Amazon even. So can you tell us about how all of those things came to be and how that evolved? I'm very interested in solutions and approaches to addressing sustainability problems. And for this reason, I ended up working in different capacities. I don't see myself as only an academic, right? Like I don't describe or think of my identity as such or as a consultant. I allow myself to experiment and to explore new possibilities. So the, throughout my career, I had many opportunities to engage with problems that I considered very relevant. For example, as a consultant, I worked with traditional populations in the Amazon, but also with very large corporations worldwide with international organizations like the OECD. I worked with many nonprofits, including nonprofits that I helped since the very early stages, such as one that accelerates businesses of low-income entrepreneurs that live in favelas in Brazil. Wow. Yeah, I, I've had a, I was a, a bit of a portfolio person before I, uh, I joined academia and I still do and get engaged with many different projects because I, I wouldn't consider myself only, for example, a climate change scholar. I study climate change, but I'm broadly interested in innovative approaches to addressing systemic issues and especially these social environmental problems that are so pressing. So that's a bit of my background. You mentioned that I'm multidisciplinary. I would say I'm multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary as well, because I try to use the lenses and the methods from engineering, for example, to approach management problems and vice versa. It's not only like working in different disciplines, it's more integrating them Mm -hmm. and seeing how the methods that are typically used by one of them can be used in creative ways in another, right? So that's something that I try to do very systematically in my work. So you brought this thinking and all your background together and written a book that's called The Four Workarounds. And very early on in this book, you proclaim a fascination with hackers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I know that's going to sound odd to our business audience, but tell us more about that and what you think we can learn from hackers. Uh, I'm fascinated, as you said, by computer hackers and by organizations, groups that make big impact with very limited financial resources. When I started looking at hackers and examining them, I was also a bit frustrated with my own work. I had worked, as I mentioned earlier, as a consultant, and I realized that many of my consulting reports had similar recommendations, like you need more alignment or more coordination, things that are not wrong. But I started asking myself, who doesn't necessarily start from the same assumptions and who's making big impact in very resourceful, immediate ways? that do not involve long-term governance, for example. So I I started asking these questions. And even though I had very little knowledge of computer systems, I thought of computer hackers because I didn't know much about them, but they seem to make these outsized impacts, right? Considering the amount of resources and training that many of them have. Once I started studying hackers, I realized that my assumptions I had in the beginning were not very accurate. First, hackers, most of them do not start from malicious intents. They hack for other purposes. And there's so many hackers around us. Other thing is that hackers don't necessarily have to be in computer systems. 
as one of the founders, one of the creators of Gmail, said there are systems everywhere and, and, and you can hack whichever systems, right? You don't have to necessarily think of hacking as limited to computer systems. And that was a turning point for my work. I realized that there were many hackers out there hacking all sorts of systems, education systems, sanitation systems, healthcare systems, but we hadn't really paid attention at them. And we hadn't used this hacker approach in a systematic way to expedite real world change and especially to address these pressing problems that could benefit so much from the ingenuity and the resourcefulness of hackers. This is really fascinating. So what you're saying is that hackers are innovative people with limited resources that challenge established systems and that we could all learn from that mindset. Exactly. We can learn from these mindsets. And there are many hackers that are not necessarily the, do not fit the stereotype of these computer geeks wearing a hoodie, right? There are many hackers out there hacking all sorts of problems, many different kinds of systems, but we hadn't really learned from them. We didn't know how to best use these methods, these mindsets and attitudes to address our problems, and especially these complex problems that we constantly encounter in our daily lives, in our work. So thank you for that. Yeah, I never thought about hackers in that way. So thank you for inviting us to rethink that and letting us know that we could learn from that mindset. So I don't want to give the whole book away, but I was hoping that you would define for us what you see as a workaround and how do workarounds work in the complex environment of an organization? Sure. When I worked with hackers, that was just the, the very starting point of my research. But I very quickly realized that the essence of a hacker approach is that they work around obstacles instead of trying to tackle them. And that's something that happens in our daily lives very often as well. We constantly encounter these very tough challenges, bottlenecks in front of us, and we keep bumping our heads against the wall sometimes instead of finding a creative and flexible workaround to get things done with minimal fuss, right? So that's the essence of hackers or hacking that they work around. And working around this flexible, it's imperfection loving. It doesn't necessarily try to solve a problem, but it gets things done without a huge resources or, or time. And uh, let me give you an example that I think illustrates that well. And it's an example that is one that I'm very familiar with because I spent a lot of time with them in Zambia. So it's a case from Zambia that it's a small organization that realized that you cannot find life-saving medicines in remote regions of Africa, including medicines like diarrhea treatment that is over-the-counter, it's cheap, there's no issue with refrigeration, for example. Even people living in extreme poverty could afford purchasing these medicines, but still they cannot be found. And diarrhea is the second biggest killer of children under the age of five in the region. So it's absurd, right? It's obscene that this problem is still such a big problem, considering that from a technical perspective, it's not that complex or it shouldn't be. But if you look at that system, you're going to find some systemic bottlenecks like poor infrastructure, poor healthcare infrastructure and poor roads, for example, that prevent these medicines from being transported and made available. So if you think of the conventional approach to this problem, you're going to try to tackle that, right? Like you're going to try to tackle these obstacles. You're going to try to improve infrastructure, improve logistics. And of course, these things are important. I'm not saying that they are not. 
but they may take forever and they're very costly, very difficult to implement. And people like us that are that perhaps do not have access to so many resources feel completely disenfranchised, paralyzed. There's nothing we can do to address this problem, right? But the workaround that this very scrappy nonprofit identified was that they identified that in these very remote regions, you cannot find life-saving medicines, but you find Coca-Cola. You find Coca-Cola everywhere in the hardest to reach places on earth. You find Coca-Cola. How can we get Coca-Cola but not medicine? I know. Uh, and, and it's so strange that when I work with traditional populations in the Amazon, I arrived at this kind of like a conservation unit that was far from a city and very remote. And they gave me fish. They gave me local fruits, right? Like only local products. Mm-hmm. And then they opened a bottle of Coca-Cola. That was like over a decade ago. And at the time, I thought that's so strange, right? Like, why am I drinking a Coca-Cola here? How did this bottle arrive here? But I didn't make anything of this experience as this organization did because they systematically piggybacked on Coca-Cola's distribution channel to make this medicine available in remote regions. And the outcomes are amazing. They achieved excellent results within a very short time frame. So when you first started talking about this, I thought to myself, How do you figure out when to solve a problem and when to work around a problem? But as you continued speaking, I kind of intuited that sometimes you have to work around when solving the problem takes longer than the time you have needed to implement a solution. Is that right? It is right. And I would add to that as well. I would say that some of the complex problems we have today are not necessarily going to be solved. They're not solvable. Problems change. The parameters we use to analyze and understand these problems change. So, for example, you may want to try to solve poverty, but poverty has changed over time. 100 years ago, poverty was completely different from what poverty looks like today. And if you look at poverty in Scandinavia or poverty in the United States or in Zimbabwe, you're going to come up with very different observations. So the assumption that we're going to be solving these complex problems is a bit naive. I would say that we have to find ways of creatively addressing them. And when we try to do that via workarounds, for example, we identify so many other possibilities and opportunities to engage with these problems in more meaningful ways and even to find problems that we hadn't conceived from the outset. So let's talk about this now as it relates to business for our audience, because in the business world, terms like workarounds and loopholes and next best can have negative connotations. Can you help our audience think through how to change their attitude and mindset around these things and what it means to adopt these things from and for a business? If you talk to anyone working at a large organization, for example, I'm sure they're going to report facing very complex problems and constantly trying to do something that they feel constrained or they feel paralyzed. There's not much they can do. The organization is so bureaucratic or it's so difficult to get things done, right? These are things that we hear very often. What this research shows and its knowledge that was gleaned from many scrappy organizations that are resourceful and get results in very needed ways as well, is that you can find ways of fighting this paralysis and fighting this feeling of disenfranchisement, of change making. And there are many opportunities 
for organizations and for staff to pursue alternatives that are unconventional, like the workarounds that I report in the book, and do that in a more systematic way. And this is particularly beneficial when they feel too constrained, when they feel that mainstream solutions are not working and they are trying, but it's not working. So these are the circumstances. And, and it normally involves, well, many recommendations that I observed from this research. But I would say that one that sparks the mind is finding simple but unconventional ways of addressing problems that normally deviate from the status quo. They challenge the typical ways of addressing problems, and they find alternatives that sometimes open up so many new opportunities. So as individuals in an organization, when we're engaging in this process of thinking through different ways to solve problems, not everything we try will work, right? Until we get to the ultimate innovative solution. Do you have any advice for our audience around how they can recognize these behaviors that are just trying things and failing forward until we find the solution that works? Yes, definitely. One of the benefits of workarounds is that they are very low stakes. They're not easy to be found, but once you find them, it's very easy to implement. So I can give you many examples here of companies that were one small, for example, that worked around in ingenious ways and that allowed them to grow or to develop their businesses in, in different ways, create new business models. For example, Airbnb is an organization that I use in my book. They found a workaround when the, the organization was very small and didn't necessarily have a big marketing budget to spend on ads. They knew that the platform was innovative. It had a better user experience than the alternatives. And that the main alternative, the main competitor was Craigslist, an organization that many of you may know that provides all sorts of listings, including for lodging. So most people who wanted lodging and didn't want to stay in hotels would go to Craigslist. Craigslist did not have a good user experience at the time. And, and Airbnb... I remember. <laughs> yes, exactly. So do I. And Airbnb had a better platform, but also provided at the time professional photography. The platform was trying to differentiate itself, offering a better user experience. The problem was that it was not known. The people didn't know about Airbnb. So how could they know and stop using the platform? Then the workaround they did was genius. They identified a way of using Craigslist to poach Craigslist users. And that's how it works. Every time someone posted a listing in Airbnb, they would get an email saying, hey, Mishan, you're posting this listing of this house that you want to rent. We can cross-post on Craigslist because that's going to increase your visibility. A lot of people use Craigslist. And if you cross-post, there are higher chances that your listing will be seen. And then, of course, you would agree with that. And Airbnb did that for you. They would cross-post. So they cross-posted on Craigslist, which was for free. So let's say that someone else is going through Craigslist, did not know about Airbnb whatsoever. But then this person found your listing, Mishan, and they thought, wow, this has professional photography. It looks so much better. The link, everything here in the ad works better. And then they clicked and it would be rerouted to Airbnb. And they were, wow, this platform is amazing. It's so much better than Craigslist. Next time they wanted to find housing, lodging, 
they would go directly to Airbnb. And Airbnb did that in a systematic way, poaching users that stopped using Craigslist. And by using Craigslist, they piggybacked, they used, they worked around the lack of budget they had for marketing by leveraging their rival, <laughs> what the, the rival had to offer. Genius, right? The yeah. many ways of working around that companies can use, I described four of them. The, the ones, the cases that I described are all the kind that I say piggybacking, but there are other ones that focus, for example, on repurposing resources or reinterpreting rules or disrupting self-reinforcing behaviors. Yes. I like the one about repurposing resources, especially in this environment. I always wonder when people are laying off people in a company, but also have open positions, like, is there any way we can think about the competencies those people have and repurpose them to other areas of an organization? Exactly. We normally interpret the resources in front of us, could be people, could be a technology. I use a case that is from RBG, reinterpreting a resource that was a court case, using that as a resource to address sex-based discrimination. And there's so many opportunities to rethink and repurpose these resources in ways that are unconventional and in ways that will get things done. One of the very trivial examples I experienced with computer hackers was that once I was talking to a computer hacker and he described how he wanted to boil an egg and his office didn't have a water boiler or a stove. So he used a coffee machine, a very fancy coffee machine he had in his office <laughs> to boil the egg and eat the egg he wanted to eat for lunch. Because a coffee machine grinds coffee, boils water, right? Like froths yeah. milk. It does many things, but we don't normally think of the many functionalities <laughs> that coexist within a coffee machine. That's this talent that we can develop. You just have people being laid off and having different skills capabilities. It's a little bit about framing. It's about thinking of the many sets of skills they have that can be repurposed in a different context and for different purposes as well. So we all need to think like college students trying to make gourmet meals in their small dorms. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> all right. So one passage in your book call, caught my eye and the passage is this. Because it's human nature to play by the book and place judgment on those who break rules, many of us believe that the world needs to enforce more order and more discipline upon those who deviate. I think we don't deviate enough. So, Paolo, are you advocating for the destruction of society and the rules as we know it? Can you tell our audience, in your opinion, what is the difference between deviance and disobedience? <laughs> I'm not advocating for the destruction of society, <laughs> but I am advocating for more deviance. Let me explain what I mean by deviance and the distinction between deviance and disobedience with a few anecdotes that I think will make it easier for us. I'm Brazilian, as I said. One of my favorite cities in the world is Rio de Janeiro. Have you been to Rio? I have not. You know, there's a long story about how I was supposed to be living in Brazil, but that's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should eventually, if not live in Brazil, go there to Rio. In Rio, if you go to downtown and you see a pedestrian light and it's red, the rule there says that you cannot cross the street. 
but everybody does, right? Like people completely disrespect that rule. In that case, people are being disobedient and crossing the light when it's red in a context where everybody crosses is not deviant. It's only disobedient. You are disobeying the formal rule, but you're not deviating from the status quo. Okay. Let me give a different example. If we all watch these movies of Italian mafias in the US, we know a little bit about the codes of conduct. Yes. The Godfather, right? Like all these movies. These criminals are criminals and they disobey many rules as imposed by the state, right? Mm -hmm. They disobey all sorts of rules. They kill people. But they have codes of conduct that they never disrespect. They don't disobey. For example, you don't tell on your friend, right? Like you're not going to be disloyal. So there are different rules of the game in different contexts, not only the rules that are imposed on us by the state. And the status quo is not simply looking at the rules imposed by the state, because the status quo, if you're part of a mafia, is different from the status quo if you're not. What are the rules that shape the context of each of us? And that's the difference between disobedience and deviance. Deviance requires or involves defining the status quo. Disobedience doesn't. Disobedience does not necessarily involve deviance. So, for example, if, again, going back to the streetlights in Germany, I never cross the street when the pedestrian light is red because nobody else does. I'm conforming to the rules of the game. In Rio, that I cross the street and I disobey the rule, I'm also conforming to the rules of the game, to the status quo. So you see the difference between them. What I make the case in the book is for deviance. It's not for disobedience. And I show how workarounds are so powerful and they are effective and they are graceful in allowing us to be more deviant and pushing for much needed change. Well, Paolo, you are a super fascinating guy, and I feel like we could have this conversation forever. In summation, though, is there one thing that you want readers to come away with after reading your book? I want them to value this imperfection-loving and flexible ways of addressing complex problems. And I want them to value the knowledge from these scrappy organizations. I think the business world often tells us that we should value the IBMs of the world and that all other companies should be more like IBMs or Google, right? And I disagree with that. I think there's so much we can learn from these very scrappy organizations that are feisty, resourceful, unconventional in the ways they address problems. So these are the key takeaways I would like people to have to value the knowledge, the wit of these scrappy organizations and also to understand these different ways of working around all sorts of complex obstacles to address problems that they face in their daily lives, in the workplace. We love IBM around here, Paolo. They're a client. But I will also say that even companies like IBM are getting scrappy. Our CEO interviewed the head of people for IBM, and one of the scrappy things they're doing to diversify their workforce is to really look at each job description and think about whether it needs a bachelor's degree. And they've been able to remove bachelor's degrees as a requirement for many of their positions, which because there are differences in people's access to that level of education, has immediately diversified their candidate pools. 
So just a shout out for IBM, even IBM having been around forever, they're getting scrappy too. We love them. Exactly. I also worked with IBM and they, uh, including for this project on scrappy organizing and workarounds, and they are recognizing and pursuing these creative and flexible ways of addressing problems. But what I meant was, and gave IBM as an example, is that we value the big powerhouses. Yes. We don't look at the little organizations operating at the fringes of power. And I think we should do that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Paolo, for joining us today. I know that I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I know that our audience will too. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This was a joy, Mishin. 